Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Dean Devlin, Chairman and Chief Executive of independent US Prodco Electric Entertainment, on why he believes Amazon's IMDb TV will win AVOD streaming, and his fears for the future of theatrical releases. And Jack Davidson, Executive Vice President of International Content Consultancy 3Vision, on how the events of last year will shape the industry in 2021 and beyond. Dean Devlin is Chairman and Chief Executive of independent US production company Electric Entertainment, behind series including TNT dramas Leverage and The Librarians, plus The Outpost for The CW and Almost Paradise for WGN America. He's also co-written and produced a string of Hollywood blockbusters including Universal Soldier, Stargate, Godzilla and Independence Day. Electric will this year debut a revival of Leverage via IMDb TV and has licensed a number of other titles to the Amazon streaming service as well as launched its own offering in this space called Electric Now. Devlin spoke to Ollie Hammett about these developments, how he sees the industry changing with the growth of VOD, why he still believes in the power of linear TV and his fears for the future of theatrical releases. Given everything that's that's happened recently, what's the impact been on development, production, distribution from your perspective? Well, it's chaos, you know, on, on every front. Production, it adds enormous amounts of costs. I would say 20% of our costs is COVID-related, and it affects your ability to, on how you shoot, how you work together, how you deliver, working in post. I mean, it, it affects every aspect of it. So it's been difficult. I mean, I am proud to say that during this pandemic, uh, our company was able to produce 54 hours of scripted television, but it was not easy and it was not without its own pain. So that's been difficult. The ability to to uh, sell foreign has been enormously difficult as, as around the world, people aren't sure what they should buy, when they should buy it. Um, and of course, this is all happening during the streaming explosion. So I can't think of a time where we have been in more transition and in more flux than we are at this moment. And you mentioned uh, you put out 54 hours of scripted content. How does that, how would that compare to your output in a normal year? Well, in a normal year, it wouldn't be as much, but the, uh, we just happen to have three TV series going at the same time this year. So it's one of those things where, you know, when it rains, it pours, right? You go a long time trying to get more production going. We finally had three TV series greenlit and then COVID hit. And it was like, how do we deliver? How do we do this? And um, I have to say, I've spent more time learning about COVID, working with uh, medical companies, and medical personnel, I should get a, an honorary doc. I mean, I, I've spent more time on this than I've spent on anything in my entire life. But, you know, knock wood, uh, we've been able to prevent any serious injury. So. And you brought up uh, the rise of streaming. How do you think the rise of AVOD and SVOD in the last year, how's that going to affect the sort of the legacy players, the established companies? Well, I think there's going to be a, a, a period of, of chaos trying to figure it out. You know, th- this happened at the same time as lockdowns where people suddenly wanted to watch more entertainment. So, I think all the streaming platforms, whether it was AVOD, TVOD, SVOD, I think they all got a big giant shot in the arm from people stuck in their homes. But there's there's still huge questions that we don't know. How many subscription services can survive? You know, people gave up their cable bill because they felt it was too expensive. Once you add up more than three or four of these subscription services, you're pretty much back to your cable bill again. So who will survive this? Who won't survive it? What what will merge together? I personally believe that AVOD is going 
going to take off in a very, very big way. And it'll be really interesting to see who ends up becoming the big players there. Because, you know, I mean, I think with Tubi, Pluto kind of leading the way, I think we're about to see real big challengers coming from IMDb, from Roku. You know, I, I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of services that are going to be uh, big in demand. Uh, you know, I, I don't think those services will hurt the SVODs or at least the bigger ones, but I think people want more content and, and there's only so much they're willing to pay for. So what are, what are the particular qualities of AVOD that convince you that it's going to be the biggest winner out of all this? Well, because I think people still like the lean back experience of television. You know, I, I think that the Netflix of the worlds are very much a lean in experience. It's people sit down, they've made their dinner, they're going to watch what they want to watch. But there is this comfort of turning on the telly and making dinner and having it on and then getting sucked into something. But I think that we're at a point where less and less people are willing to pay for that. So I, I, I think that there will be this kind of comfort food of AVOD that will become more and more available. And I think people are going to embrace it just simply because our insatiable need of content exceeds our wallets. <laughs> okay. And uh, you also mentioned Roku and IMDb, what we might call fast channels. What's been the effect of the rise of these fast channels on your role in the industry? Well, I mean, uh, 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 you know, I think Pluto kind of showed us that you could have these uh, linear streaming channels in the AVOD universe. And that had a very kind of comforting feeling. It felt like old cable. And then you'd start seeing this show up on smart TVs. And now Roku has a, a, the Roku TV. And I think uh, Amazon is offering channels now. And IMDb is going to offer channels. And we're going to be seeing more and more places that do that. And rather than rewinding or TiVoing it, you're going to be able to go over to the AVOD section and see the episodes you missed. I think it's an exciting area. And I think the vast majority of people don't even know it exists yet. So I think the fact that it's doing as well with such a small awareness says that it has a, a very high ceiling, in my opinion. Another trend that we've seen in the last year is major studios so it's starting to retain their own content for their own streaming services. How do you think that will impact distribution? Well, we don't know. you know, And that's really the, the giant $64,000 question. I mean, my hunch is in the short term, this is going to be bad for independence. But perhaps in the long term, as the buyers around the world have less content to choose from, that independents like my company, Electric Entertainment, or say a Lionsgate, or even Sony as a, as a company that doesn't have their own channels or streaming service, you know, uh, these libraries may become more valuable in the long run. In the short term, though, I think we're seeing a, a enormous confusion from buyers around the world not knowing how to compete against the HBO Maxes and the Netflixes and Amazons. Do, do, they, do they lean much more heavily on local grown content? Do they merge with others to try and build a bigger... I think they're, they're all trying to figure it out. My belief is in the long term, this may be a good thing for independent. What's the what's the short-term effect? The short-term is that buyers are reluctant to buy. Uh, they're reluctant to buy one because they're not sure what direction they're going. And the other is, with COVID, advertising dollars are way down. So when you're in the non-subscription world uh, and, and you're, you're, you're relying on your ad dollars to help pay for your acquisitions, it's a scary time to make acquisitions. You don't know how much you can pay for. You don't know how much you're going to be earning. So I think that this dual hit of a transformative time in our industry and COVID, it's accelerating certain things, but it's all also delaying other things. It's absolutely accelerating uh, people's interest in streaming, whether it's AVOD, TVOD, uh, uh, SVOD. They're, they're at home more. 
and they want to consume more more entertainment and they're discovering platforms that they didn't know about before and going through those catalogs and watching it. Uh, I think we, we, ha- we have a captive audience. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I think if we look at percentages of the rise in viewership on all of those platforms, it's extraordinary. But a, a large part of that has to be due to COVID. Do you think things, there's a chance things might go back to the way they were post-COVID or do you see the trend lasting and continuing? Well, I don't, I don't know if we'll have this kind of growth year after year, but I, I don't see us ever going backwards. I, I think once people start getting used to watching through streaming devices, it's kind of hard to go back. It's it's such it's so convenient. It's so easy. You can go from one device to the next device, you know, and, and I see it with my children. My, my children will have their friends over and they're each on their own device watching a show. And, and I'll say, you know, I could put this up on the big screen. It's right. It's right here. And they have no interest. So, you know, I, I think um, I think the world is developing new viewing habits. And I don't think the, the old the old ways will, will vanish. But um, I, I don't think they're going to be experiencing growth. And what are the what are the big challenges ahead for independents like electric? Well, the biggest the biggest challenge is is how can you make content and own it? You know, uh, I mean, as an indie producer making a deal with a larger streamer where they they own the content that that's a very you know real possibility for a lot of companies, and you can make you know a, a pretty good deals. But if you're a company like ours where we really live and die by the growth of our library, it's much much harder now. It's much harder to strike deals where you can maintain ownership. What are some ways you think you can get around that and sort of maybe diversify things or how do you how do you solve these issues? Well, I, I think that we're we're looking at players who are not benefiting from this and finding ways to create partnerships where we can bring value and bring original entertainment and exciting entertainment that has a big audience base, a worldwide audience base, to people who maybe in the past couldn't afford these types of shows. And now suddenly it's it's a good option. In other words, if, if there was a, a, a company, say in, in Germany that's used to buying shows from CBS and suddenly CBS wants to keep everything for its new platform, that's going to create uh, you know, a hole in the product line. And, you know, we're hoping we can fill it with quality product. So that's kind of what we're doing. Then the other thing we did is we launched our own streaming platform. We launched Electric Now to aggregate the fans of all of our different shows into one place. And our hope is that at some point in the next few years, we could at least have a, a large enough platform that if we can't get our domestic uh, sale going, we could just put it on our own platform for the domestic portion of our income. What's the rationale about behind having a sort of fast channel so you have a linear and a VOD model? Because I, I really believe in linear. I, I, I'm a big believer in it. You know, I, the uh, the slogan of our channel is turn us on and leave us on. And we find that most of our fans do that. They come home, they turn it on, they have it in the background while they're doing stuff. Then they go, oh, there's that episode I love. And then they gravitate towards it. I think that that linear is going to be the advertisement for on demand. You know, it's you'll look up and you're halfway through an episode and you go, oh, I need to see that from the beginning. And that'll move you over to your the AVOD part portion. But I do think that there's, there's something about the linear experience that you don't get with that lean forward experience of on demand. So for us, when we built the app, it was really important that the minute you turn open the app, the channel was playing. Now, you can you can then go down and grab one of our podcasts or any of our TV shows or our movies, or you could even go in the TVOD section and buy stuff if you don't want to watch commercials. But we wanted the first image you got was our linear channel. The vast majority of people who use our app, they open it up and they just let the channel play. Another thing that we've seen is um, major studios uh, are actually skipping theatrical windows due to obvious reasons. How do you think this will impact distribution? Well, it it's absolutely heartbreaking. You know, I mean, uh, the theatrical experience from uh, as a filmmaker is, you know, 
That's what we fell in love with. That's what brought us to the table. And it does seem to be this is a uh, a dying world, you know. And um, I think that also sociologically, this is very bad. You know, I, I was talking to a group of comedians and they were telling me that we have a whole generation now that have lost their humor education. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they can watch everything on Netflix. And they said, no, no, that's not it. They said, when you were young, you were in a movie theater and there was a joke and you didn't get it. But other people in the audience laughed. And when they laughed, then you got the joke. You know, it's that delayed reaction. And that's how we all learned our collective sense of humor. Now, everybody's only got the humor that w- exists within their own families. And so there's a, there, we're seeing comedies just dying left and right because this whole education, and, and, and I think that could be applied to all types of social behavior, courtesy, uh, a conversation. You know, so many things we learn from that experience of being in a dark room with strangers and going on an adventure together. And uh, I, I think the loss of movie theaters would be a huge loss to our society as well as our industry. But until we come up with a way to bring people back into the theaters, that looks like it's on life support. I was teaching at a, a film school a couple of years ago. And we had ha- I had a 150 kids there in that class. And about 80% of them were from the US and the rest were from around the world. And I asked them, I said, how often do you go to a movie theater? And they said, three times a year. And these are people who want to make films. And I said, well, if you don't go to movie theaters, where do you want people to watch your films? And they all said Netflix. So, I mean, if the filmmakers themselves, the next generation of filmmakers aren't focusing on theaters, we're in real trouble. We're also seeing brands actually make their own content now. So we're almost moving on from sponsored content to just brands making their own stuff in-house and distributing it themselves. What's the effect of this on, on companies like yours? Well, it's always whether or not you can team up with brands in ways that make sense or not. I mean, you know, if, if, if you think about it, it really is full circle. I mean, we're, we're at the birth of this new animal, whatever it's going to be, but it's clearly in the birthing stage. And if you think back to television in the 1950s, that's exactly what it was. You know, the Philip Morris Hour presents this show or, you know, and, and so we've kind of come full circle. Uh, uh, but I think the, the you know the problem with with branded uh, uh, self made entertainment is that uh, unless it's done really artfully, the audiences uh, they don't feel comfortable with it. It feels it feels ingenuine. But, uh, you know, I, I would just point to any time you've ever been in a movie theater and a trailer came up and the whole audience moaned. You know, it's like, well, how did the audience know that that movie was going to suck? Well, because you could tell that it wasn't made by anyone who actually loved the movie that they were making. <laughs> so you know, if, if brands are going to be doing this more and more, they're going to be very careful which filmmakers they work with and how they do it so that it, it has its own value beyond supporting the brand. And yeah, I'm, I've always been in favor of doing product integration, all that stuff, as long as you can do it artfully and not let's stop the show and sell this beverage. And obviously a big part of the TV industry calendar is Nappy, held virtually this year, along with events like like uh-huh. TV and others. What do you think the effect of this will be on the industry long-term? Well, I, I'm hoping it's not long-term. I'm hoping it's short-term. You know, that, look, there's just enough, it's just not the same as when you can get in a room with people and, and talk about it, you know, because now we're, we're relying 100% on trailers and whether or not someone's clicking the link to watch it. Uh, the thing I've always loved about these gatherings is you can sit down and you could discuss where a show is going. Okay, here's the here's the trailer for episodes one and two, but by the time we get to episode eight, we're going to have gone on this whole arc and you can explain who the guest stars are. And you can have an interaction. You can, you can talk about how we can work together to promote, but now it's kind of, you know, it's online, click it. And if you like it, give us a call and we'll make a deal. So I, I, I think the short term is we're going to see a lot less sales. 
Um, I'm, and I'm hoping that that doesn't become something where everyone goes, well, you know, we'll save a lot of money if we don't have to keep throwing these festivals. I, I think there's enormous benefit from them, both from the sellers and the buyers. Um, we've talked about indies. What about sort of established networks? What do you think they need to do to sort of navigate through this really turbulent time? Well, it seems to me, and again, I'm not part of that world, but it seems to me that all of all of the networks are owned by a bigger company and all, those bigger companies are all betting on a streaming platform. So it seems like each network is now becoming a niche within the streaming platform, that uh, uh, the broadcast on on whether it's cable or, or live is almost the advertisement for where it's going to live, which is going to be on the streaming platform. So I think that the choices in what they're making, you know, it used to be you know, only a few years ago, uh, a network would, would self-produce maybe 20% of the content and 80% was a licensed deal from some other studio. Well, now it's becoming 100% self-owned. I don't think that's a good thing for them creatively. I don't think it, you know, it means they're going to be supporting shows that aren't quite as good because they're financially more in the hole with them. It's going to mean working with less people because you don't have deals with them because they're now signed to somebody else. It's almost like the old studio deals where everybody was under contract at each studio. I don't think this is good for the for the platforms in the long run, owning all their own material. I don't think it's good for the artists. I still have no idea how back end's going to work. I think about like when I did Independence Day, it had a giant theatrical release, but then there was a big DVD release. Then there was network sh- showings. Then there was cable showings. And every year there was another way that it was introduced to the audience. So a whole other generation saw the show. It was promoted year after year. And it had this, this income stream so that my back-end participation is still putting my kids through school today. But had I made that for one of the streaming giants, I would have been paid for it and that would have been the end of it. And then it would go away. And does this mean at the end of the day that our feature films are basically movies of the week? I mean, once you've made the movie and once it's on the streaming platform, why will it come out again later? There, there is no sec- You're not selling it to a secondary market so that somebody else is now promoting it. Unless someone searches for the title in five years from now, the title will disappear. And in the past, you'd be flipping channels and, oh, it's on HBO or, oh, it's on TNT or, oh, <laughs> they're, they're giving away the DVD or whatever whatever ways that it would uh, resurface year after year. Or, you know, it's a holiday show and they're, they're featuring it. I don't know how that works anymore on, on single films. I mean, I could see how that might work in franchise movies when they're promoting the newest version of the franchise and now they're pumping up the old episodes. Mm-hmm. But then aren't those really just two-hour television series that have an episode once a year. (laughs) If you were making something like Independence Day nowadays, how do you think it would be different? I mean, from a financial point of view, I think it would be far less lucrative to the filmmakers. I think it would still have that big debut, but then I think that the drop-off would be enormous. There there wouldn't be these other windows in which to excite new audiences. You know, I think the fans of the first Independence Day are far greater today than when the movie came out, even though it was the number one movie in, in the history of the world at that point. Because most people discovered it later. You know, they, they watched it on television or they saw it on cable or someone gave them a DVD. I don't know how that's going to work in the streaming universe. You know, once once it's on the hard drive, what's the motivation to promote it again or to get, eye, or how do you drive eyeballs to it? The sad thing is movies become that much more disposable. Now, a TV series, you might discover a series in season five and now want to go back and watch the old episodes to catch up. Or there may be a show that you love or, or someone told you that they love and now you'll go stream that. I can see how television really survives and even thrives better than it did before. Movies, I'm, I'm, I'm very frightened about. And obviously, movies are my first love. So I, I think, unfortunately, it, unless some creative mind figures out a way to better support the legacy catalog, I think these are going to become much more disposable items than they have ever been in the past. What I'm interested in um, what Electric's got coming up on its slate for this year. Well, we, we've uh, brought back to life Leverage. So the new version of Leverage will be debuting on IMDb TV this year. And season four of 
of The Outpost will start airing this summer. And um, we're hoping, we're still waiting for word, but we're hoping that we're going to be doing season two of Almost Paradise. So those are those are the ones that are, are the hottest in the works. And then, of course, we're developing tons of stuff. Oh, and we have a feature film coming out later this year called The Deal. We literally just locked the film like in the last week. And so now it starts the process of selling and distributors and trying to figure out where it ends up. And IMDb, of course, one of these new, uh, one of the newer streaming platforms. How did you find working with them? Spectacular. Spectacular. You know, I mean, I think the interesting thing with IMDb and Amazon is that they've had this enormous success with their SVOD. And of course, they also have enormous success with their TVOD. So the question was, is it worth it to get into AVOD? And of course they did, but it, it created a sort, of, a sort of confusion. In other words, when you went to look for something, am I buying it? Do I have to have a subscription? Is this one for free? And so they decided to kind of move that brand of the free television to IMDb TV. So this is kind of a unique thing. They have their own unique point of view on the types of shows they want to do, on what they think is going to work for AVOD as opposed to SVOD, how they're going to identify themselves separately from SVOD. And they put together a group of really terrific executives. And you don't often hear me praising executives, <laughs> but they've got a group there that they're intelligent, they're creative, they're real forward thinking. I think they're going to win the AVOD streaming wars just by their commitment to it and their passion for it. Um, and we've talked a lot about the, you know, the challenges and the difficulties that 2021 may bring and that 2020 did bring. What do you think are some, you know, some opportunities that the changes might present? Well, again, I, as I said earlier, I, I think we have a captive audience. So the question is, what are we going to present to them and how are we going to present it? If we do it right, we have a real opportunity to capitalize on this, to debut these new platforms, to show people why they're worthy of their attention, time, and, and ad dollars. But if we blow it, <laughs> you know, it, it'll be a real missed opportunity because just not that often do you have that many people sitting at home, bored out of their minds, trying to figure out something else to do. And if we can offer them something that's exciting and fun, that'll become a habit and that'll last past the pandemic. Um, so it's really going to be up to these platforms on what they offer and how they offer it. The only last thing I'll just say is, you know, uh, we are experiencing enormous chaos in our industry at the moment. But uh, what was always taught to me is that in chaos, there's always opportunity. And that's what we're going to be seeing. Who grabs that opportunity? Dean Devlin from Electric Entertainment, talking with Ollie Hammett. Jack Davison is Executive Vice President of 3Vision, a UK-based international content consultancy with clients including BBC Studios, Canal Plus, Discovery and Viacom CBS. He was previously Head of VOD Product at Virgin Media and a pioneer of IPTV while at Yes Television, as well as working for IMG Media. As part of C21's ongoing Beyond 2020 series of interviews and articles, he spoke to Karolina Kaminska to give his take on how the events of last year will shape the industry in 2021 and the years to come, including the impact of production hiatuses, the accelerated boom in streaming and studios retaining rights to their own shows. With the UK now back in lockdown and other countries around the world also in their own lockdowns, what is the impact of this on development and production, but also on broadcasting and distribution? I think from, from our perspective, we're, we're better qualified to talk at the latter part of that chamber. It does directly link to the earlier part of it. Um, in that, Obviously, we've had, um, I would say, um, I, I, I guess, kind of diff very different and unpredictable kind of delays to 
um, uh, to, to the production side of things and, and the development side of things, the, the people we are involved with. Um, obviously, when we had the initial lockdown, there were, there, were, there was huge kind of impacts. Then we came out of that to different degrees in different markets. So, so there's a lot of unpredictability from, from that side of point of view, from the development production side. But from the distributor side and from the service side, we get fairly consistent messages from, from people we talk to and in terms of the work we do with obviously broadcasters and, and services and and, 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 and online services um, having a lot of holes in their schedules. And, and that's obviously the biggest kind of impact in content terms for, um, uh, for, for, for the broadcasters and service providers, whether that be um, also impacted by live elements and live sports, but, but also from delays in the, in the production market. And there's been a lot of need to fill those holes and that's had quite positive um, kind of positive um, result on, on some of the distributors, especially those who have deep catalogue. We've been able to fill some of those holes with uh, uh, with library and especially those with film products. I think we found that a lot of the broadcasters in particular ha- have filled those holes with um, with film product and, and relied on that. So, so all of those have provided dividend in some respect to distributors. But but it doesn't get back to the problems around uh, around production and all of the hugely kind of kind of difficult issues around insurance when people are coming out of that that we are that probably we're less less better to talk about so going forward then in, in that respect how do you how do you think things are going to how are things going to work out for for these broadcasters and distributors and, and other sector players maybe we just think about one element of it which is uh, I guess the drama side of it which has been the, the side of, of huge interest to people for quite a few years now. Um, the the local broadcasters and and the local players actually let's not not limit it to broadcasters are in a com- incredibly competitive market when it comes to drama and that's been great for for for, for the production market for, for for quite a few years now. The global streamers are present in the market. They, they've had a huge impact. Um, they have a huge amount of power and leverage. Um, they've helped drive budgets up. Um, and, and this has made it harder for, for, for local players who operate in single markets or, or, or have less scale. And COVID is not, has not helped that because the global streamers are, are probably better placed to emerge out of COVID um, and, and to, to be less, uh, less impacted, certainly financially, Financially, so with the free TV broadcasts in particular, who are now struggling from the the fallout in the advertising market, this along with kind of subtle changes to what they may have been doing with with, with programming anyway, means that the they're probably one can't you have to speculate suggest that there'll be more cooperation. There'll be more cooperation across European borders and with European broadcasters. Because expediency through the need to have more financial security and and to be able to have more leverage in terms of uh, and more power in terms of getting hold of the content they want um, means that you feel that there will be more compromise uh, and more cooperation um, with local broadcasters to get to get content because you have to feel that kind of it's played into the hands of the global streamers in terms of having more um, um, more power more leverage in the market. So cooperation among local and and more traditional broadcasters you think will be key to competing with with the challenges posed by the streamers 
Yes, I do. I mean, I mean, we feel that that was happening to sort of anyway. So th- this is a sort of general directional change that we think, like many, um, a- a- are going to be accelerated um, by by the pandemic. Okay, and so we know that there's been huge growth in AVOD and SVOD streaming in in the past year because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, we've also seen the rise of free ad supported streaming television channels, otherwise known as fast channels. What threats and or opportunities does this pose for the wider industry? Uh, I think this is a sh- kind of, it's an opportunity for many. I think the, the, if you look at the numbers in particular, the numbers emerging out of, out of the pandemic in terms of what's happened to advertising, um, if, if there's any resilience and if there's any forecast in terms of what's going to bounce back quicker, um, it's going to be the adjacent digital advertising revenues that, that the broadcasters have. And that is their BVOD services or, or how, whatever term you like to use, the kind of the AVOD from the broadcasters. And one thing the broadcasters are having to do anyway is diversify away from traditional advertising, whether that means launching kind of ad-funded on-demand services, which could just be an enhancement of catch-up services, or if that means launching SVOD or launching other types of service, like like fast channels that might sit um, e- either through their own digital properties or on, on services like Roku and Pluto who, and, and Tubi, who are specialising a great deal in the fast channels. So there, there is no reason. And if you, in fact, if you look at the fast channels today, a lot of those are actual simple extensions of, of traditional media outlets, um, or in some, or actually extensions of, of digital services, YouTube channels. But you see many brands that have come out of traditional TV that feature heavily on the fast channels in the US. And there's no reason that that the, the broadcasters couldn't try and capture a part of this market because really. What fast channels are, are doing are, are, are targeting that slightly lower investment, ambient, um, lean back kind of kind of wallpaper viewing that consumers do do and have done for years and will continue to do. So there's no reason that, that traditional players can't extend into that space. And I think it's it's worth kind of saying that also I think kind of this, those evolutions can be true in the pay environment as well. So some of it's not just AVOD and fast, but some of the extensions in SVOD um, can also be seen as opportunities for the pay providers and the pay channel groups, which is what we're seeing with now with the launches of the Discovery Pluses and the Disney Pluses of the world. And speaking of, of platforms like Disney Plus, many of the major studios which have launched their own streaming services are retaining content for their own platforms. How is that affecting the distribution sector? I mean, that's a big area that we've been following now for, well, in more detail for a few years. The, the kind of, the interesting thing is, it's kind of analytically the numbers are showing kind of a slight shift where the studios are, uh, their pipelines are favouring their own own services. I mean, this isn't new. Studios have had numerous pay TV channels internationally from as early as the 80s when, when pay TV began to roll out. But but as, as direct-to-consumer efforts have grown in size and significance, like Disney+, Plus, it, it, it's influencing on that programme distribution is much greater. And actually, at the moment, each studio's activity varies quite a bit, particularly by market. Some of them are, are actually still kind of selling in the market and, and either have output deals in place, like, like with the likes of HBO in, in, in particular in the UK. Um, others are renewing or doing new deals, such as NBC Universal, 
rehearsal in kind of with big output deals in Australia very recently. Um, so, so there is a bit of a mixture in terms of what's going on, but there is no question that that's changing. Um, and we'll see as Disney launch Star that, that they'll be pulling back kind of FX content from from the deals they have um, with the likes of the BBC and others in, in, in the world. And it can only present um, an opportunity actually in two ways for, for independent distributors. On the one hand, these services are licensing content from third parties. They're not just licensing from themselves. That varies by degree, but HBO Max has provided a good opportunity in the US for some some of the UK distributors today. And, and the likes of Disney Plus and others will be looking to fulfill kind of local content um, quota obligations in, in European markets as well. So there, there's an opportunity to sell to these players, um, but also as they start to increasingly withhold their content, that's going to leave a hole uh, in these other services that can't be filled alone by original productions and they'll need to look for, for, for acquisitions. So that has to be an opportunity. And we've also seen some of the major studios skipping theatrical windows due to the pandemic with cinemas being closed and putting films that would have premiered in cinemas straight onto their platforms. How does that affect distribution? You kind of, in some respects, need a bit of a crystal ball for this, but one of my feelings with this is that the cinema business is structurally sound and, and it's structurally, if you put aside the pandemic and the issues that's had, the devastating impacts that's had on, on a lot of the cinema businesses, there's no reason, I believe, to feel that people will stop going back to theatres once kind of fear-induced change and and actual kind of regulatory limitations have stopped people from, from, from going to, to the cinema. So I, I feel that the cinema market will return it may not look identical but it will look significantly similar um, and, and the activity that we have now it is is again kind of expediency driven to, to, to get the product out there um, that that being said we have seen premium kind of vod releases over the years and there's been a long debate about it and there's been experiments but the experiments that we've had now are much more significant and it will provide data that will allow people to consider more about what might be the best route to market and the best opportunities so we may see subtle shifts for different types of films and different types of service that that could be exploited by svod services or, or potentially pay tv but i guess the one thing I, I would add i think that the nature of the studio pay tv movie businesses has some elements to it that could create some short-term impacts on the market that could be seen as maybe seen as an opportunity for distributors because all of the pay TV operators that have pay movie service, so the likes of the Sky Cinema channels and, and, and the other movie channels throughout Europe and international markets, they have output deals with studios for theatrical movies. And how much they spend on those output deals is directly linked to how many movies that they get provided that were released at the cinemas and how much box office those studio those movies managed to get so they're linked to the, the performance at the box office so the studios are going to have a hole in their budgets in the coming years for, for, from the pay movie deals they have and the services that have pay movie deals are actually going to have budget they're going to have free budget because they've been forecasting what that spend is going to be and that spend is going to disappear so the question may be is is what do they do with that do they use that budget somewhere else and things uh, industry events like MIP TV and MIPCOM and NAPI are normally a huge opportunity for distributors to sell their content and for broadcasters and platforms to buy content. 
it. So what is the impact of these events moving online? I think um, I think you'll get different views on this. I think we, we've, we've felt throughout the, the last 12 months almost now, it's nearly 12 months, um, at the start, people were finding ways to do business and, and, and they were finding out how efficient they could actually be in a virtual world. And we had some, uh, from personal experience, we had some, some, some great business done in, in a virtual sense. But uh, we believe that in terms of new business and in terms of innovation and, and a lot of elements of, of, of creativity and, and relationships, there's still going to be nothing that replaces meeting people in person. So the the, the events like MIP and, and, and the NAPIs of the world and, and Content London that, that are significant kind of well-attended events with, with the relevant stakeholders and, and, and great people there they're going to come back because there are things that can be done at them and achieved at them that can't be done in a virtual world. And I think kind of the the, the, the virtual events, you can do things with them, but there's no way they're as effective in terms of the, the on-site sessions. Um, and what, what you can achieve on-site in a small amount of time is, is much greater than you can see virtually, I think is probably in a nutshell. And I think in terms of virtual events as well, We've had mixed feelings about some of them. Some of them have been run well and you've had some success, but others we feel maybe haven't been able to be so relevant and so accurate and targeted. And, and so they don't just haven't seemed to strike a chord. And as we progress into 2021, what other issues, threats or opportunities do you think the industry will face this year and beyond? Well, there are some basic concepts that are are, are being rethought and have, have been, to some extent, people have been rethinking them for some time. So that that's... Um, a lot of people rethinking in terms of content sales to service provision, if you particularly for your studios, but also some others, the likes of the BBC and ITV, from think, rethinking from linear channels to VOD, from from pay to view operators to, to to online platforms. But behind all this change, I think there are some kind of changes, and and you mentioned the fast channels and, and AVOD. There are some changes around kind of rights sets and whether that be between kind of free TV deals with enhanced catch-up rights to kind of then the broader AVOD uh, uh, and BVOD and all the holdbacks around that that relate to it, to, to, to SVOD and to pay TV usage. We've already seen some value moving from, from the kind of later second window and beyond to the first window with the first window being much more important. But now with these kind of rights changes, we're going to see it. We're not at equilibrium yet, I think is what I'm saying. And I I, I think kind of there'll be more changes and there'll be more subtle shifts to this and, and we need to get equilibrium on that because there is such huge change with the and faster change with the traditional stakeholders now that they're the ones who are changing kind of their right sets and evolving what they're doing so it's not a threat but it's it's in some respects sort of I guess some some cleaning and clearing up that, that's going to need to be done but I, if one thing can be said about the last 10 to 12 months and COVID is that there are it's almost been a perfect storm of things going on. There's been kind of the growth of streaming and kind of increased competition, new services, and some global markets have been more hesitant to, to SVOD are suddenly seeing growth. We've seen broadcasters now having to fight back even more, diversifying their revenues with digital, and that means BVOD and AVOD, SVOD kind of innovations. Um, we've seen pay TV 
re-evolving. That's kind of key, kind of the jury's out, kind of what was the kind of the recessionary conditions kind of that we're going to be facing now. What's really going to be the impact on pay TV that was already needing to compete with new products and in, in a new kind of pricing spectrum because of SPOD. And then there's the content owners and their D2C initiatives. And all of these things have been uh, just being even more of a catalyst for change. And I guess the kind of the question in all of that is that, okay, all of these things are, are happening, and but that again means more fragmentation. And so what does it mean for the consumer? So who's going to fill that role to help the consumer? Because sure as hell going to need to be filled. Like It's not that people are going to uh, be able to sort this out for themselves. And so it comes back to that question that people always have the aggregation debate now. Who, who, who's going to aggregate this and make this work? And who's going to make it easier for the consumers to find all this great content people are producing? And that is, we're seeing changes with that. And that those changes are also accelerating with pay TV operators, changing the way they, they offer Netflix and aggregate other SVODs, and also what their relationship with the Discoveries and the Disneys. And now it'll be it'll be other channel groups and, and other players. So th- th- there's more change to happen there and there's more opportunity for people. Um, and there's, there's sort of a great deal, uh, I think, that will be happening uh, this year and beyond. But this year, we're going to see even more. And so obviously, it's, it's quite a turbulent period for the industry. What advice would you give to producers, networks, platforms and distributors in order to survive? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think I said, would have said this last year as well. Everyone's got to be quick on their feet, innovative about how they're thinking, be willing to think about different business models and just innovating in terms of how they work on projects. The one thing we find in terms of kind of when we're trying to trend things and look at trends, I mean, some things, it's some things that, that you can look at trends and see clear things, but in other ways, kind of there, there aren't trends. I mean, certainly in the production community, the message we get is that every project is increasingly unique and they have to, you can't go into something with a simple kind of cookie cutter approach and you have to think about kind of each project in its own rights and and look at it look at all the different kind of kind of elements t- t- together and, and and so with that i guess you need you need the Im- the inputs as well so you need to be be sure what's going on keep a clear view kind of everything it's hard because there is so much but you have to remain kind of flexible and uh, flexible and innovative jack davison from three vision speaking with carolina kaminska That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.